Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Okay. So this week we've had some oral arguments before the Supreme Court, or actually a couple of weeks ago, this one that I want to ask you about. They started in what, um, just this in May, doing them where we could hear them, but I think this was done before that. Um, yeah, so what you're talking about is in late, in late April, the Supreme Court uh, started handing down uh, rulings in cases that they heard oral arguments last fall and early winter. Yes. Yeah, so this is, and that's fascinating to me too, that there's a length of time between we hear the oral argument and like the rest of us have completely forgotten what was being talked about. And then all of a sudden they come out with a ruling and we go, oh, that's a thing. Um, so I, I, it's fascinating to me how all of it works. But in this particular instance, um, Georgia, right, Georgia, took a case to the Supreme Court, the state of Georgia, not the country of Georgia, and not a person named Georgia. Um, the state of Georgia took a case uh, to the Supreme Court, Georgia versus the Public Resource Org, which sounds to me like a nonprofit sort of something that has to do with something. I don't know. I didn't really, I didn't super look into it, although it looks like they are a legal representation type of organization. Well, they're, they're, they are what's known as a public interest group, okay? Uh, and their, shall we say, main focus is to increase access to government documents and materials, okay? It's a good thing, in my opinion, because that's what we are trying to do. That's right. So I'm on their side. <laughs> whatever, whatever it is that they did, I'm on their side. Um, unless they did something really bad, in which case I'm not on their side. But yeah, the, the case you're talking about is, as you pointed out, um, uh, this interest group, okay, and, and for the rest of this podcast, I'm just going to refer to them as the public resource organization or organization. The organization uh, brought uh, uh, a challenge, a lawsuit in federal district court uh, because Georgia, along with 22 other states and the District of Columbia, um, basically had a practice of employing uh, a private company uh, to provide annotations to the laws that their legislative bodies had created. Okay, wait. Okay. So we're going to pause here and explain quickly and briefly what an annotation is. Okay. So basically, let's say, for instance, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the state of Virginia, uh, the General Assembly passes a law, right? The governor signs it. And then it starts to be used. Annotations, okay, are created to explain how the law is implemented any rulings that help explain or interpret the law by courts, or in the case of pretty much four-fifths of all the states, 
any attorney general's advisory opinions, which also help explain how the law is implemented. The annotations allow, for instance, lawyers, okay, to figure out how the law is being implemented so their clients can either comply with the law or find ways to get around the law, okay, or to make arguments in courts, okay? Because if you have an annotation, it's kind of sort of like if you have an annotated bibliography in NIA for a research paper. You write the annotation so you have a brief explanation of what a book or a journal article actually said and how you think it means. Right, how so you, you think it applies to the current, to what you're trying to say or to your argument. That's right, okay? Now, in the case of Georgia, okay, the annotations that were produced okay, arose because Georgia has a commission, okay? And it's called the, <laughs> the Code Revision Commission, okay? It's a state entity, okay, comprised, or excuse me, composed mainly of Georgia state legislators funded by the state's legislative branch, okay? And it's staffed okay, by the legislature's Office of Legal Counsel. Okay. And basically what they did, this commission, they hired, okay. Well, no, wait, um, they, they make the annotations. Well, what they did was they hired a private sector company, a subsidiary of LexisNexis, to produce the annotations. So did Lexis make the annotations or did the Georgia lawmakers make the annotations and Lexis compiled them? Lexis, the LexisNexis subsidiary compiled all the annotations. But they were made by the people, well, they the were made by the commission. No, the commission hired somebody else to do all of this annotation work, okay? Okay. So you didn't have members of the Georgia legislature doing the research, okay? Okay. The commission itself, okay, hired somebody else to do the annotations based on laws produced by the legislature. Okay. Now, what Georgia and these 22 other states did was once the annotations were produced, Okay, they basically claimed that those annotations were copyrighted materials so that if anybody wanted to use them, they would have to pay a copyright fee. And that's where the interest group said, uh-uh, these are annotations based on laws produced by government officials. Well, and the annotations are paid for by government, by, by the government, hence by the taxpayers, right? Because if the, if Georgia is paying somebody to make the, the annotations, then state taxpayer money is paying for that because that's how the Georgia legislature doesn't have money of its own. It's money comes from. Okay. That's, that, that's fine, but
but that wasn't the argument made by the interest group. Well, that's what the argument should have been, but okay, fine. Okay, but again, this all comes back to, okay, uh, uh, the Copyright Act passed by the United States Congress. Okay, so many, many Americans don't understand that if you produce a book, okay, or a piece of music, okay, um, a piece of artwork, okay, under federal law, you can get a copyright, okay, to protect your work, meaning that if anybody else wants to use your work, they have to pay you a fee to use it. Right. Okay. Yeah. And the idea behind copyrights is this encourages people to produce this literature, this artwork, this music, and gives them a financial incentive to do so. Right. Okay. It's your work. It's your property, if you will. Okay. And you should be you should be able to derive a financial benefit from it. Well, the argument made by Georgia was, we produce this so that other people wouldn't have to, and since we hired somebody to do this, okay, the subsidiary of LexisNexis and the Georgia legislature should derive a financial benefit, okay, from producing these annotations. The interest group responded, and their claim was, we don't want to pay the copyright fees because these annotations are based on work produced by the people's representatives. Which, isn't there something about the, the government edicts doctrine yes right which is basically uh, let, me, let me correct me if i'm wrong let me try let me make a stab at it so if you as so you you were saying you know if you write a book you own the copyright to it and you're able to make money from that however if you wrote a book at the behest of the federal government as part of your job and your job was to let's say produce a a book on uh, President Eisenhower, right? And the and the government paid you to do that because it was your job. Then you don't own the copyright to that material. The government owns the copyright to that material because it was produced in the in the in the doing of your job. Well, like like justices don't own their their opinions, right? Okay, yeah. In the hypothetical you just you just gave, okay, things produced by government officials do not receive copyright protection. That is the edict, you know, government edicts doctrine uh, created by the United States Supreme Court. And the logic is basically this, okay? How can the output of government officials, okay, be copyrighted? It's being produced for the benefit of whom? The, the public. Okay? So that's the government edicts doctrine. Okay? And it was created back in 1834 in a Supreme Court ruling called 
Wharton, or excuse me, Wheaton versus Peters, where the court basically went ahead and said, what the government produces, okay, they do so for the benefit of the public. And therefore, nothing the government produces, whether it is a Congressional Research Service report, a law passed by Congress, a regulation that is created by a government agency, they're not doing it for personal gain. Well, okay? well I'm not sure we go that far, but okay. Okay, but I mean, <laughs> the logic is, okay, they are producing a work, if you will, okay, for the benefit of the public, okay? So the government should not be able to go ahead and restrict access or charge a fee to access government documents. And from the other side, you shouldn't be able to double dip. You're already being paid to do that work. Yes. You you can't be paid again to do that work. That's right. Like if you if you you know if you compose music as your job as the head of the band for the Navy, right, which is an awesome band, right? And you compose a piece of music that belongs to the Navy. It belongs to and therefore more or less to the people. Like those pieces of music are generally speaking not copyrighted, which is why any band in the world can play that piece of music. That's right. Because it's in the public domain. That's the point right. of the public domain is to say, like for instance, uh, Nina was pointing this out in our, in our um, data episode. The census has an enormous amount of data. Yes. Which it will give to you. But if you want it in some sort of prepackaged, super nice form, that's where you end up paying. Like what you're paying, in the sense of what you're paying LexisNexis for, is you're paying them to make it look nice and easy to read. But the actual work itself, okay. So I see where the I see where the court's coming from on hearing the case. Okay, so the case goes to the Supreme Court, and the ruling was five to four. Okay, now, nothing like a split decision. It's a split decision. And before we get to the substance of the decision, the votes were highly unusual. The majority opinion was written by Chief Justice John Roberts. However, the other four justices in the majority are the last four appointed justices, the four youngest, okay? I kid you not. Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Well, now that's a strange bunch of bedfellows right there. Yes, okay. It did, the, the division was not on conservative versus liberal, okay? No, because that's two conservatives and two liberals. That's, yeah, that's right. The four in the dissent. It's not gender because that's two men, two women, but there's, that's a, right. there's a woman left out. That's right. In the dissent, it was Thomas, Ginsburg, Breyer and Alito. <laughs> Is that one of the signs of the apocalypse? Are we in the end times? Has somebody opened an envelope and I don't know about it? Because, wow, that's... So the, 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 okay, so the vote count almost immediately got, you know, constitu or constitutional law scholars, uh, uh, judicial politics scholars were like, hey, what the heck's going on here, right? Freaking out a little bit. Okay. <laughs> But then you get to the substance, right? Okay. And basically the substance was this, okay? 
if you had to narrow down Robert's majority opinion to one sense, it was this. Nobody owns the law. Nobody owns the law. The law is for the public. And these annotations are created and derived from the law. So Georgia and the other 22 states and the District of Columbia can't make money off of this. They can't hire a private sector firm, okay, to do all this work and make money off of this. It's the law, okay? They can still have that firm do everything. They just can't copyright it. They just can't copyright it. Which they means not copyright it. The company's okay. not going to do it because then they have no way to sell it as a, as a product. That's right. Okay. okay. Now, what did the, what was the dissent? Who wrote, so you said Thomas wrote the dissent? Okay, the primary dissent was written by Thomas, uh, which was joined by Alito, and in large part uh, Breyer. Ginsburg wrote a separate dissent. Okay. Now, so what, Tom, what were they grumpy about? Okay. Well, Thomas just basically came out and said, "Okay, uh, our precedent is wrong." Okay. Well, um, you have to admire going straight to the point. We've been and, wrong for 230 years. Next. <laughs> well, and, and in Thomas's point was, okay, what Georgia and the 22 other states have been doing, okay, could not have made sense when the Supreme Court looked at the original purpose of the copyright laws, okay? Because according to Thomas, okay, the government edicts doctrine, okay, is not faithful to uh, Anglo-Saxon history, okay, legal history. And his point is the British crown actually had, okay, an anti-government edicts doctrine. You could not quote or use laws handed down by the British crown because the British crown, okay, got its power from what source? Taxation. God. Oh, my bad. The other you can't, power. You can't <laughs> copyright God, okay? Somebody should tell that to the Bible companies, but okay. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, he makes an interesting argument. He basically just comes out and says, okay, we created a precedent that no longer is applicable to the facts on the ground today. So therefore, our, our case law has to acknowledge that the legal community and almost half of the states of this country, okay, rely upon these annotations to do what? To defend. Well, defend to engage people. in yeah. legal practice. Yeah. Okay. That's his argument. Okay. Okay. Ginsburg's argument was basically it wasn't the Georgia legislature that was making money off of this. Okay. Who, okay, decided to provide annotations of Georgia law? The commission. The commission's not the legislature, it's not even part of the executive branch. They have the independent authority to go ahead and help Georgians understand Georgia law. So our previous precedent doesn't apply. Okay. Huh. 
huh, yeah, huh, right? I... It is a fascinating case for not only the government edicts doctrine, which the Supreme Court basically broadened to include not only laws and regulations and court decisions, but any annotations based on those. Right. Okay. For anything. For okay. any. Oh, yeah. On the that other hand, far-reaching. I mean, that has the potential to be super far-reaching, right? Because. Yeah, I mean, because you know, think about it this way: if you're LexisNexis or a subsidiary of LexisNexis, why would you engage, okay, in the time-consuming, okay? Um, very detail-oriented work of producing annotations when you can't do what? Make money. Make money. Yeah, yeah. Whatever else may be said about the corporations, they're not doing it for your good. <laughs> the, the idea that somehow the corporations are warm and fuzzy and want to make your life better, um, you know, GE, we bring good things to life, that may be true, but we bring good things to life for money. Like, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, we still have to make money in order to do this. Any common good that arises is an auxiliary benefit. It's not <laughs> the primary, right? Right. But as Thomas points out in his dissent, okay, think about all those lawyers who are now going to have to go ahead and do their own annotation research Okay, and if you know you're a small firm or a solo practitioner, you won't be able to do it. Okay, yeah, you just don't have the resources. Right. Okay, you don't have the money, the time, the staff to go ahead and do this. Okay, and as somebody, by the way, who's relied on both annotations but has done their own legal research, I got to agree with Thomas. It's a hell of a lot easier and more accurate, I would argue, for me to go ahead and pay $60 for this, a CD-ROM of all the annotations of all Georgia laws, regulations, and court decisions than it is for me to go ahead and kill, you know, two or three weeks and miss a case. Right, right, and, and for listeners who never did this, there used to be a thing called shepherdizing. Yes. <laughs> and the, it comes from shepherds, which was a list of all the cases. Yes. And so if you shepherdized a case, you went and found all the other cases that were relevant to your case. That's right. Now, because of the way, well, the way the world has advanced and electronic materials have advanced, there are, there are a couple of major producers of legal research who we've mentioned LexisNexis to give equal airtime. Westlaw is yes. their major. Uh, there are some smaller people that Hein is in there and there are some other groups that are in there. But the two majors, now you press a button, right? Like you pull up your case and then you press a button and magically all of the things that are attached to your case in some way come up and you're able to see what's valuable and what's not valuable. The idea that people would go back to shepherdizing, I mean, shepherdizing used to take days and days of sitting yes. with those books and pulling out the various volumes and it would lead you to something else. And I mean, people have no idea how much research has changed just in my career in libraries in 30 years. 
Yes, I'm a geezer. Um, I'm about to have my geezerly birthday, so I, I'm feeling oh, good. Oh, happy birthday. Thank you. But that 30 years has seen an enormous change in accessibility and how much material you can get a hold of. You know, you're, you're talking about missing cases. It used to be that when you shepherdized a case, you just knew you were going to miss cases. You just knew it was going to happen. And now it's pretty rare that there's a major case that goes by that gets missed. And I mean, like really rare and almost never um, do you miss any laws. And it's just, because there's people out there who do that and you pay money and those sources are expensive. Um, and I get where the, the, the organization doesn't like that because frankly, both of those, both of the major legal um, databases are expensive. They're, they are out of the reach of individuals for the most part, unless you are a lawyer like, one of the super high paid Alan Dershowitz type, you know, I make a gazillion dollars a case lawyer, but if you're a regular lawyer in a small town, you can't afford those. And we have at VCU, we have one of those products, um, but we have the academic version. We don't even have the legal version because the legal version is too expensive and we don't have a law school. So there's no reason for us to have one, but it's, it's, they're enormously expensive. We're talking, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars a year. So I, I take their point that they're saying regular people can't afford that. People who are representing themselves can't afford that. What are we, how are they supposed to, what it does is it changes the law to be people who can afford something versus people who can't and their defenses will suffer accordingly. Yeah. And so you got these two competing imperatives in regards to what should be, okay, the access to government documents? The interest group, and you and I are very sympathetic, and, you know, we started off the podcast, and I think you, you know, neatly, you know, encapsulated, okay, the, the appeal of what the interest group was trying to do. The interest group, okay, wants to promote public access to government documents, okay, and doesn't believe that uh, the public should have to go ahead and pay for even things derived from government documents, okay? You could not probably find two more people who are willing to sit in that particular church's congregation than you and me, right? <laughs> I like access to government documents. That's what you do for a living, right? Yep. On the other hand, I'm also very sympathetic, okay, to the arguments made by Justice Thomas in his dissent in regards to what will be the impact, okay, in regards to those who use the law on a daily basis, okay, and the extent to which, okay, all of this vital research, I mean, and annotations are vital, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay, I mean, I, I don't. I tell students this all the time. If you want to shorten the length of time you got to spend on doing research for a research paper, learn the skill of doing annotated bibliographies right. because it gives you a shorthand you can go back to 
So you can just plug in what you wrote when you first read an article or a book. Right. Okay. And how this relates to your argument or the counter arguments you want to respond to, etc. Okay. And that's what legal argument is all about. How can I marshal evidence to support my argument? What will be the likely cases, regulations, decisions, okay, that work against my argument? And how do I have, I need to have an answer for those. That's right. Right, like, because the lawyers on the other side are bound to bring that up. Sure. So I say in Augenbaugh versus the state of Virginia, it was found blah, 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 blah. And then, and then I need to have a response in my pocket for when the other lawyer says, in Rogers v. Virginia, blah, 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 was found. And I need to be able to say, yes, but the right. circumstance was different in this way. That is how, if anybody's ever been to a legal, uh, to court, that's how, well, not traffic court. I mean, like, I'm, I'm talking big time court. That's how it works is they bring up cases when they're, when they're saying in this case, this is why you should rule this way because these other people ruled this way. And, 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 and for those of you who don't want to become lawyers, who don't want to go to court, and by the way, you don't want to go to court. Yeah. And we wish for you that you never have to go to court as, as a defendant. Okay. But even if you want to go to graduate school, for instance, or, you know, you want to become a, a college professor or a researcher, your ability to go ahead and understand that there are counter arguments or counter views to what you are claiming and being able to respond to them is the mark of, okay, an advanced, nuanced mind, okay, which, as we've been discussing throughout this podcast, okay, and a willingness to go ahead and respond and talk to others, okay, who think differently to you so that you understand what they're saying and perhaps you can engage in a conversation of, but what if, right. okay? Well, uh, and you have to acknowledge that people are not acting most of the time out of malice. They have no. a point of view. They have a point of view and understanding their point of view will help you get closer to compromise than or maybe even truth a truth that both of you can accept right okay right so <laughs> so it, it's i'm with tom i can't uh, that i <laughs> i have so many feelings about being with thomas because usually we're on very different tracks of, of viewing <laughs> the law not that i think that justice thomas is always wrong because i don't i think there are times when justice thomas has said things i'm like okay and then there are times when i say hey sir welcome to the 21st century um which is mean and i would never say to his face because that would be rude but well, I mean, but in this particular instance him bringing up the idea that this has this has carry-on effects for small again your small legal firms your your individual lawyers your people who are representing themselves and more than that regulators who are looking at yes statute who are trying to figure out whether what they're going to do will actually be in violation of the statute that's huge regulation in the states is huge you can't say we're going to make everybody, I'm going to use an outlandish example. We're going to make everybody wear a mask in Richmond, Virginia, if they go outside. 
If you step outside your door, you have to wear a mask. If you don't know what the statute's basis is, and you don't know... You don't what, know what courts have said in similar cases. You don't know what the attorney general has uh, said in an advisory opinion. You're flying blind. Right. So then you say we're going to enforce it by doing this, and you're completely... I mean, it's immediately, you're immediately in court. It's going to cost thousands, if not millions of dollars to settle cases because people didn't have the background information that they needed to do their job. So I'm, I'm with him on that. I think there is a, there is some, there is a scary to get, level of that. Well, to give you a, a, a real life example that is, that has happened in the, the past week. Okay. So uh, and, and this kind of sort of relates to the hypothetical you just mentioned, Nia. In the state of Wisconsin right now, uh, Republicans in the state legislature have taken the governor of, of Wisconsin to state court, okay, um, challenging the scope of the governor's stay-at-home executive order, okay? And in particular, uh, the legislature has issues with uh, certain businesses and certain organizations that have been closed, but also what the thought process was. And the legislature has argued that the governor doesn't have the authority to do this. Well, the governor has responded, well, my authority is based on uh, the part of the state constitution that gives me the authority to act as uh, the chief executive of the state. And there are a number of other laws, okay, that in the past, have been interpreted this way by either Wisconsin courts or the legislature has allowed previous governors to act in similar ways in similar crises, okay? Which led to a fascinating exchange between some of the judges of the Wisconsin State Supreme Court and attorneys for both the legislature and the governor's office in regards to what has been the meaning of these parts of the state constitution and of state law. I mean, they were talking about, you know, examples from previous epidemics, pandemics, natural disasters, etc. Okay. And some of it, okay, focused on annotations, okay, of state law. These were government documents, right? Oh, see, I'm struggling because I'm split. I'm oh, like sure. the Supreme Court. I'm, I, I now, yes, because there's part of me that's, that's with, with Justice Roberts, right? There's part of me that's with the chief. The law should be open to all the people all the time, the derivatives of the law, the everything of the law, all of it is and, and I don't think anybody's questioning that the statutes of Georgia are public domain because the statutes themselves oh, yeah. are in the public domain, right? That's not in question. What's in question is the annotations to the statutes, not yeah. the statutes themselves. So let me do make that clear for listeners in case you were wondering. Um, we're, we're talking about the add-ons to the statutes, not the statutes themselves. The statutes themselves are unquestionably public domain. Yes. And, I'm, and, and I think Roberts, what he did was say, well, if the statutes are 
unquestionably public domain, then everything that derives from the statutes is public domain. Oh yeah, I mean, like for him, that's a simple, relatively simple. Well, okay, but you wouldn't have these annotations if you didn't have the statutes, and the statutes are public domain. Therefore, yes, I mean, when when this case was rising through the lower federal courts, okay, I was just like, I'm with okay the interest group, right? right. Access okay to government doc do, uh, documents, right? You know, the, you know, I access I, for the people. You know, I learned about the the government uh, the government edicts doctrine, okay, when I was an undergrad, and I'm like, of course, this has been already decided by the court. They decided it in three different cases in the 19th century, okay. The state of Georgia is going to lose, right? And then I read Robert's majority opinion, and I'm like, it's simple, it's straightforward, it provides clarity going forward. And then I started reading Thomas's dissent, and I'm like, ah, crap. <laughs> yes, right? Wait, there's an argument on the other side. You had your undergraduate moment, and you're like, this is patently obvious. And then somebody goes, except X. And you go, oh, man. Man, yes. You have to, then you have to go back and rethink your whole position. Yes, okay. Like, there, uh, there was that oh, man moment where I was just like, <laughs> Wow. Okay. And, and now I'm torn. Okay. Um, and, and, um, and I didn't think I was going to be, um, I, I, I gotta be honest. Right. You yep. know, I, I, the, um, I, I am torn in part because I'm part of the publishing world as working in a library. I'm part of the publishing world. Yeah. I am all about open access. We have an open access librarian. We push for people to put things in open access. This podcast is in open access. We will never make money from this podcast. That's not <laughs> I mean, like we didn't try to put it behind a paywall or anything like that. One, one does not do that with podcasts generally. And two, we just never even, it was no. part of what we do. Our mission is public, yes. is public access. We know that this podcast has pulled down in countries other than our own and by students other than our own sure. and we're fine with that we're fine with that go forth if you want to listen to this podcast good luck um <laughs> we you know we've never made a thing of that we have it on the compass because the compass is our university level open access so we're all about open access and i'm all about that but there's a part of me that feels a certain le level of sympathy to publishers who say, but I'm adding value to the material by either making it digitally accessible, right? Which is, which is, there is a cost to that. Or because I'm manipulating the material in some way that will make it simpler and easier. I'm again, thinking about the census data, right? To pull it down um, <clears throat> is really kind of complicated. And you almost always need a program to help you do that. Yes. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, okay, those people should be able to make some money. Um, but then you get into how much money they should they be allowed to make. And that's... It, and then it gets really complicated. Yeah. Right? It, it turns into this big giant gray. It was, it starts off very black and white, right? 
power to the people, governments, government documents for the people. And then you're like, okay, but the government documents are not produced in the way that the people can really understand. You're like, well, crap. Now I have to. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, because as we talked about before, the work of annotation is, okay, difficult work. Okay. That's and, intellectual property. That's okay. Intellectual. And there is value to that work, right? Okay. And like most things in a capitalist economy, okay, you know, if you put time, labor, energy, okay, into a, a, a process, okay, um, then, you know, you should be paid for it. Right. So. Okay. Well, so I'm with you that there's like, there's the complications of we, we should reward people in some way, but by the same token, what do we do about people who can't reward, but still should have access? Yeah. 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 Uh, so it's a, yeah, this, this, this particular case is, um, I think is like one of those balls of yarn, right? <laughs> starts off like okay i'm knitting i'm doing fine i'm doing fine and then all of a sudden your cat comes along and goes oh, you got me a toy and they <laughs> got it around the room and now your yarn is wrapped around every piece of furniture 64 times yes trying to get it untangled and the yarn that whose original purpose was for you to knit that sweater has now turned into a toy for your pet Right. Okay. So <laughs> how do we classify or label it? Right. Okay. And again, you know, the, the purpose behind copyrights was to go ahead and allow people to derive an economic benefit from work. Okay. But the original source of the work, okay, was to produce something for the common good. So does that require us to go ahead and modify the Copyright Act? Uh, because if you read Robert's majority opinion, okay, that's what would have to happen and would make a significant change to the government edicts doctrine. Okay. Okay. A doctrine again, that flows from the idea that Congress has the authority in the constitution, okay, to issue copyrights and patents. Well, and flows from the uh, and further flows from the idea that the people have a right to know, right? Yes. Like part of the reason you have the revolution, besides the fact that George is bonkers and we don't like him and we don't want to be part of his country anymore, <laughs> is that I mean, <laughs> revolution oversimplified TLDR. But I'm gonna have to remember that the next time I teach the founding of the U.S. The I'm just US saying, regime in Poly 103. I just wrapped it up for you in two sentences. You just put it right out there. But so my besides students, that, my future students, thank you because they'll be like, "Wow, okay." He said this was going to be an entire class lecture, but he just wrapped it up in two sentences. And then he said we can all go for coffee. Um, so, but. Aside from that, you get to the idea of, of representation, right? People want representation. They want to have a say in the government. And they want 
the fruits of their labor. They want the they want to be able to see what the government is producing. And yeah. you saying that the government at that point didn't allow you to use their materials. And so it's not surprising that we would come from, from an opposite point of view because we tried yes. to do that with almost everything was coming from an opposite point of view of the idea that no, there is thing, there are things that the, that the people have a right to access. And then you get the, what we have with the Library of Congress and the founding of Library of Congress and the founding of the idea or the formation of the idea that information should be shared and information should be free. Yes. And so I can see where there, there, where Roberts is saying, this just follows what we believe as a society, which is that, is that certain kinds of information should just be accessible to all the people all the time. Yeah, and if you go back to what is the source of government power, it's, you know, the source of government power in the United States is the people. But in a monarchy, the source of power of government is God. Okay. You can't question and, God, but you can yeah. question your elected leaders. That's right. I mean, that's the, the entire basis of the social contract theory, right? right. Social contract theory. Okay. We give up certain rights in exchange. We get order stability and regularly scheduled opportunities to hold our government officials accountable. And how else can we hold them accountable if we don't know the output of their efforts, laws, regulations, and judicial decisions. Well, and not to mention the fact that how would you know if you were breaking the law if you didn't know what the law was? Oh, hey, one of the purpose, you know, one of the <laughs> primary purposes of law, right? Behavioral norms. Okay. They say ignorance of the law is not a is not Defense. an excuse. But, and the only way they can get away with saying that is if the law is accessible to the people. That's right. Right. If we hide the law and then we say, if you don't know what the law is, you're in trouble. Like, well, but how could I know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, it's complicated. Yes. SCOTUS, why does everything have to be so complicated? I guess in some, in some, um, I, I, in some way, this is a perfect microcosm of how the SCOTUS works. Yes. Right. Because they took a case that has such complicated and potentially far reaching. I mean, this is a national, you said 22 states plus the District of Columbia, right? So just under half. And, uh, and the potential for this to have carry on effects for years and years and years and kill potential industries. Like there's all kinds of stuff here. I guess that's why they took the cases because it's not what you and I were like, well, it's that guy. Come on. Yes. Why is this even in question? And they're <laughs> like, well, it turns out. Yep. There's a few questions that you didn't think of, Augie and Nia, and we're going to answer them for you. That's right. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Scotus. We didn't get you anything. <laughs> but, okay. Well, I it's wait. a good case for people to dig in. Um, I'm going to put the link on the on the guide so that people can go in and dig around in that. And if you want, if you, if you would like listeners, I'm also going to put the link for the, um, the government of governor of Wisconsin versus the legislature. So you can see what that argument looked like. 
And uh, I guess, oh, I guess I could put the link to the recording of this argument. No, yes. they didn't do a recording of this argument. Excuse me? They didn't do a recording of this argument, did they? Uh, no, but you can put the transcript. Oh, I'll put the transcript. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks, Augie. I'll, I'll see you next week. All right. See you, Nia. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.